Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hi Hannah, how are you today? I'm very well, hi there, how are you? Yeah, it's good, it's good. Uh, spring and sort of summer's around the corner, uh, that's always a great time spring for me. Is, spring is barely even sprung, I think, and we're already kind of praying and hoping for summer around the corner, whilst living in winter climate still. So where where are you based at the moment? So I live in Manchester, born and raised in Manchester, um, and I've got my family home in like the south of Manchester area, but I'm working in Rochdale, which is a bit more north. So I tend to hover somewhere between the sort of south Manchester area and Rochdale these days. And um, do you ever come down south? Uh, I do actually come down south quite frequently. I've got family there. I've got friends there. Um, so even throughout like my uni days, I was always there probably like once a month or something. But I'm there for just enough time to appreciate what the capital city has to offer before retreating back up north to some peace and quiet and stability. Uh, and your medical training, your medical school, where was that? Yeah, so I went to medical school in Brighton and Sussex. Um, I went to Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Beautiful, beautiful place. Um, I actually applied there on a whim, having never been and visited it or experienced Brighton or saw what it had to offer. So the day that I arrived, my first day of uni, was the first time I'd ever experienced Brighton. And it blew my mind. It's a really, really lovely place. Anything by the seaside is lovely to me, to be honest. So what was the reason for, you know, apart from the whim, what was the reason for applying to uh, Brighton? I think I literally just had one option left. I was wanting to move down south anyway, because I was born in the north, raised in the north, spent all my life in the north. And I kind of knew even from then that I was going to come back up north after university. So I really wanted to ensure that that five year uni period was going to at least give me a taste of something different, open my eyes to a different part of the country. So I knew that I was heading down south for that reason. Um, so I applied to quite a lot of London universities and then had just one option left. And I thought, well, where else do I go? Nowhere in London really appeals to me. So I just sort of ventured slightly further afield and landed with Brighton. And and what was it like? What was the sort of difference between, you know, uh, being in Brighton and sort of um, the Manchester metropolitan areas? You know, one time I spoke with someone in Brighton and their sort of summary as to what Brighton was or is, it's a town full of misfits. So everyone who's a bit of a misfit from their own little corner of the UK uh, ventures down to Brighton to, you know, be able to express themselves and live in the way that they want. And um, it's a little bit more quirky and things like that. So in a way, everyone is a bit of an oddball, but only in the best way possible. Um, I think it's quite a judgment-free, happy, relaxed sort of environment. Everyone is super friendly. Um, and I don't know if that does have anything to do with being by the seaside, but that definitely aided with my mood whilst I lived there for five years. Misfit? I mean, you don't come across as being a misfit. Am I um, 
Am I mistaken? I mean, surely everyone is a bit of a misfit in their own right. It's just how you quantify it and, you know, sort of who you're comparing it to, I guess. So in some regards, I probably am a bit of a misfit. I already know that I'm a bit different to expectations in the sense that I'm quite a loud, bubbly, confident introvert, which is how I would describe myself. And I don't think those things commonly uh, are, you know, come in a package that you would expect. And um, uh, you, your parents are both from Iraq or? They are, yeah. My parents are both from Iraq. Um, they met over there, moved here about 40 odd years ago. Um, so me and the majority of my siblings were all born here in the UK. And they're both doctors or? My father is a doctor. Um, my mother is a housewife. She keeps all the rest of the doctors and medics and the family in check. Um, whilst probably also regarding herself as, you know, like 40% doctor, 40% dentist, depending on what conversations she picks up whilst we're having dinner. And you you have other siblings who are who are medical doctors? I do, yeah. So I'm one of four. Um, I've got two sisters and a brother, all within the medical field. So we're quite a boring scientific family, to be honest. Not that much creativity going on here. Well, I mean, out outwardly very scientific, but sort of inside the house, it's all politics and religion and everything else in between. Of course. And just generally... Um, making fun of each other, criticizing each other. It's all part and parcel of kind of the Arab culture. Gives you thicker skin, you know? It's all character building. Yeah, I mean, in my family, um, you know, you had to make fun of other people. Otherwise there's something yeah. wrong with you. And, you know, um, the more you can put the knife in, the better, so to speak. Exactly, yeah. Perhaps like give the knife a twist whilst you're at it, just, just for good <laughs> measure, you know? Yeah, I mean, we had some- You might as well do it fully. Yeah, I mean, we had some actually, you know, physical altercation involving knives on several occasions. So I yeah. think um, even that's, you know, that's fine to a certain extent. Um, How many siblings do you have again? I've got three brothers and two sisters. Yeah, big family, mashallah. Yeah. Yeah. And and um, I don't know about you, but I'm sort of the second oldest and the oldest son. So, you know, I can, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I can wield the knife a few times here and there. But, yeah, um, for sure. But I can't use it. <laughs> no. <laughs> you got to pick and choose your battles, anyway. Yeah, and 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 where were you in this sort of the um, the age in the hierarchy? Yeah, yeah. I'm the youngest. I'm the baby of the family. So was that good for you, or not so good for you within the family dynamics? It's, it's been great for me. I actually can't imagine being anything but the youngest. Um, perhaps there's something about my personality that really does thrive off the attention and extra love and things like that, that you could argue the youngest gets, but that I'm absolutely true to form in terms of the youngest of the family. And, and which of the siblings did you get on with the most? So I actually get on with all of my siblings in very different ways. Um, I've got different kind of relationships with all of them. So like my elder sister, she spent a lot of time like looking after me actually when I was younger because she was the eldest. So I've got sort of more of a motherly like sort of relationship with her. Um, and then my second sister, who's much closer to my age range, we actually grew up playing together and things like that. So we're much closer as friends. 
Um, and then my brother, we've always had some like shared interests in terms of like music or TV shows or certain hobbies. So I've literally got a sort of point of connection with all three of them. We're, we're generally speaking all very close, which is really lovely. And, um, you know, seeing them do medicine, uh, did that sort of encourage you or sort of put you off or? You know, I'd like to try and say that my choice to be a doctor was never influenced <laughs> by my heavily medical family because I don't think it was ever pushed on me like it was never there was never a moment where my dad sat us all down and said listen you're all going to be doctors you're all going to be dentists and, and this is the path that's for you I think it just happens quite organically like just seeing these things around you normalizes what this sort of work structure is going to be like and what the day-to-day -day sort of life looks like and the conversations that we probably all heard as we were growing up through my dad and things like that. So it all just came very naturally, actually. When it came to the point of thinking about career, probably when I was in secondary school, there really wasn't ever any other option. It was always medicine. I mean, I briefly toyed with the idea of dentistry, um, but quickly realized that, that that sort of path wasn't going to be for me. And then I stuck medicine why why not dentistry well what was it about it that put you off so I actually ended up having a gap year between uh secondary school and university um mainly because I didn't get an offer for medicine in that time so I went away decided to strengthen like my personal statement and my application and things like that um and that was the year that my sister graduated from dentistry so she was like well you're at home you're not really doing anything how about you come to work with me for a day and see if you like it like You've still got time to change your mind. Um, so I thought, yeah, great, why not? Went to work with her, bless her. She was obviously trying to get me involved and like tell me things and, and get me to look at certain things in the mouth, but I just found it so boring. <laughs> I know that's bad. It's a great job. I'm, I'm sure it is. And I know that it is from what she tells me, but for me personally, I don't know if it was, I mean, I'm saying it now, like it's very small scale, but here I am 10 years later, on a path about specializing in ophthalmology. So when we're talking about small scale areas of the body, I can't really speak about that now, but at the time it just didn't seem thrilling enough for me, to be honest. And and, and what was what was going through your head at the time? You know, uh, you had the gap year, um, your sister was trying to sort of convert you into um, another dentist. Yeah. Um, what were you thinking then? I think a lot of it was actually just sort of panic, you know, um, growing up as an Iraqi in this sort of country and having the, you know, culture of education and academia being so heavy um, and strong within our family and our upbringing as a whole. I think that experiencing my first failure at that age, so at the age of 18 and not getting into medicine, that was the first time I'd ever experienced failure. So it was actually really quite hard to come to like grasp with, if you see what I mean. I'd never failed anything up until that point. So you just sort of assume that you're going to keep rolling through the stages and jumping through the hoops and that eventually you will get to where you want to be because that's what everyone says, don't they? You put the work in and, and you achieve the outcome. But that was the first time that I put work into something and I did not achieve the outcome. So it was a lot of like questioning, like, is this the right thing for me? Um, have I made the wrong decision? Should I be considering something else such as dentistry? Um, I think it was just a year of reflection, really, to try and come to terms with whether this really was the path that I wanted to go down, given that I'd had a setback now. Um, and I think what eventually ended up happening is that it just makes that that fire in your belly a bit stronger um, because you've had time to think about it and you've had time 
I was given the opportunity basically to change my mind and walk away and do something totally different. But rather than doing that, I thought, no, all this has done is definitely confirmed to me that this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. So we're just going to keep rolling with it, do a bit more, do as much as we can and, and, and hope and pray that it all works out. And it did, uh, thankfully. And, and, and what brought that sort of fire back into your, um, into your belly again? What, what was it that, that allowed you to honestly speaking the only thing that can really do that is time like time and reflection I think certain amounts of time have to pass um when it comes to just emotions and things in general like I'm certainly not one of those people that's like you know what the glass is always half full you've got to be positive you know look for the best in situations stay happy stay positive like I just that's never worked for me and I don't always think that it is the healthiest um sort of route to go down when you're dealing with an array of emotions that come up and things like that I think it's really important to kind of roll with the emotions so I literally just gave my time to feel what I needed to feel like I was pretty low I was sad I was questioning myself I was doubtful and that probably lasted for a good few months but the important part of it was being around my family being around my friends people who were supportive people who understood what I was going through and were very kind enough to kind of just give me the space and time to feel what I needed to feel whilst constantly reassuring me that it's not the end it's not over it's just you know it's a hurdle and life is about failing things and then it's not really a failure because all it is is an opportunity for you to learn how to do something better so just sort of switching my mindset when it came to thinking about it that's probably what really helped and you know I had a gap here all my friends had just gone off to uni essentially so I was the free one I was just darting about the country visiting them all in their campuses and things like that so it's always what you make it you know so it ended up being quite a fun year um, a different year to what I'd experienced all the way up until the age of 18 so you know no regrets everything happens for a reason for sure. So, I mean, apart from sort of having a good time, did you sort of do any any sort of structural work or studies or? Yeah, so what I ended up doing was, so uh, the way that the education system works in the UK is when you're doing your A-levels, so your last two years of education before university, the first year is called AS level and then the second year is like A2 or A-level so at AS level, I had picked four subjects, um, biology, chemistry, maths, and then religious studies, which was something that I was always really interested in and passionate about. So then when it came to my A-levels, the second year of A-levels, I had dropped religious studies and just stuck with the sciences and the, and the maths that were hopefully going to get me into university. So then when I didn't get in and I had that gap year, I basically picked up the A-level portion of religious studies so that I could complete that as a fourth a level as a whole um and so I was kind of essentially doing part-time education um part-time work um and then also just living my best social life at that time yeah that's fascinating well I mean what what was it about religious studies that really um sparked you I'm not sure what it was exactly that sparked my interest but I've always just been fascinated with you know other people's belief systems just people generally people as a whole why they are the way that they are why they do the things that they do um and I think for a large proportion of people religion or even absence of a religion may play a big part in you know the foundations of who we are and why we do the certain types of things that we 
you do. So really, it was just intrigue and curiosity to begin with. Um, the way that you learn religious studies in school is they always teach you initially with like about specific religions. So, you know, the the the, the main religions that are in this country or the largest religions in this country they're the ones that you're taught about to begin with and then as you progress through the stages is when they start talking about things like philosophy and ethics um and all these like theories of morality and like uh consciousness and things like that um which was a totally different avenue that I'd never really explored but it just you know it was it was, it was so part and parcel with all the things that I'd already been interested in in terms of why people tick essentially like why do people tick and why do certain people tick in certain ways differently to others um so I guess it probably spent like stems from understanding people and wanting to understand people more yeah I mean certainly for me when I'm sort of in in times of uh turmoil you know mm-hmm. going back to the religious text does does actually help me a lot and and um, yeah. it sort of grounds me in the the bigger picture of things um yeah and possibly it, it, it may have helped you to look at the bigger picture going back to religious studies, maybe. I think, well, I mean, I've always been brought up quite religious from my parents, obviously. Mm-hmm. So um, that's always been something that has been not so much ingrained into me, but, you know, I've, I've been raised with it. I've been brought up with um, religious ideas and, and more so spirituality as opposed to religion. You know what I mean? Just like having faith, understanding that things happen for a reason, do the best that you can do, be a good person. It's more sort of the broader aspect of these religious sort of teachings. And when you actually go in and delve into religious studies and learn about all these different religions and see like the common themes, um, you realize that, you know, we're all just so similar in terms of the things that we're believing and the things that we're talking about. They're all just packaged in a very slightly different way. Um, So yeah, I definitely enjoyed that a lot. I always said, actually, if I didn't do medicine, the only thing that I would probably go ahead and do is study theology at university, just to like delve more into it. But I don't think that I would have been into the academic side of of work at the end of that. So it never really appealed to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've gone into the study of theology for the last few years and and, um, it's really helped my clinical aspect of of work. Really? Uh, Yeah. It it gives you a really good grounding. um, Mm. Because you're dealing with human beings and, you know, we, we, we all have fundamental realities that we have to deal with, you know, existential realities. And that's not something that, um, you know, medicine, modern medicine deals with. So it's um, it's a great foundation that you can lean upon and build on um, during times of crises for, for humans that, that come and see you on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. So it 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 must have been exciting that that you got your um, offer from Brighton. That must have been quite. It was quite a buzz. yeah, a, another surreal moment. Uh, getting that acceptance letter and finding out that actually the dream is going to continue, um, and that I was about to now embark on a big new adventure. You know, moving away from home, really quite far away um to a city where I didn't know anyone I actually hadn't even seen the city before like it was just going from zero to a hundred and I'm not actually someone that likes change (laughs) um I like consistency I like the things that I'm used to so it's not that I don't like change at all but it has to be a controlled change so like if I'm gonna do something that may seem spontaneous on the surface it's spontaneous but I've thought about it significantly before doing it so it's always about controlled change like 
if I want to switch it up a bit. Um, thankfully, I did have some time to actually think about the transition to Brighton before heading down because you find out your offer about uh, like several months before you've actually got to make the big move. So then it was just a case of processing that information and, and then getting everything together and ready for the big move. It was a big, exciting chapter, for sure. And and, and did you have any kind of um, plan B, you know, if you didn't get an offer and it meant, you know, not getting in that year, what, what was yeah. the I mean, there, there was a semi-plan and the plan was just that at the time when I was applying for university, you got five, um, five choices in terms of universities that you wanted to go to. Four of them, like you could only apply to four medical schools. So you were always left with a fifth option on what you want to do with that fifth option. And so I guess it started from back then of being someone that just tries to lay the foundations for my end goal regardless. So what I did at that time was apply to courses that would give me a transfer route into medicine just in case that were easier to get into so I remember there was like um a degree or, or a course that was called like uh clinical studies or something like that at a university more local to, to where I live in Manchester and you do like a year of it or something and if you get good enough grades or a first then you can transfer into a certain medical school and start that route so I was always just kind of looking for the back door entry if I couldn't get in through the front door I'm getting in through the back one way or another it's going to happen and and when you went to medical school what was the biggest surprise for you what what was quite um stark for you certainly no longer the smartest person in the room (laughs) (laughs) honestly that sounds so silly to say and like egotistical but you spend your entire, when when you're in this position of applying for medicine or whatever, you spend your entire like secondary school education life being told you're really clever, you're really smart. Like if you, if you work really hard, then you can get to where you need to be. And they really used to like separate the medical applicants as, as well from the rest of the year group. Like we were getting our own sort of guidance of getting into medical school. And we were always like this made to feel, I guess, like the creme de la creme, um, which was, like good at the time like for your ego and things like that as you're developing and maturing and finding your feet but then to be placed in a room full of people that had all been told the same thing um it really just sort of humbles you I guess it was a humbling moment um getting into that sort of environment and realizing that actually everyone is we're all literally on the exact same level we've had the exact same path you know gearing up to this point right here so you're not that special anymore just get on with it (laughs) And, and and was was there anything that you didn't like, you know, uh, straight away once you got into uh, medical school? I don't think so. No, actually, I really thought of, I enjoyed the process thoroughly. Like, you know, um, the whole lecture based thing and, and, and feeling like you're sitting in a lecture and learning in a lecture room, which is very different to a classroom. And it's something that you've probably seen in movies and things like that. I think I just really enjoyed all the novelties of it um Brighton was a campus university which by the way I had no idea of until I got there on the first day um and so living amongst all of the students there and mingling together like I just really got stuck in got involved um you know with meeting the people that I lived with and familiarizing myself with the town that I was in in addition to the course itself um I think Brighton Medical School was a really excellent medical school it was a pretty new medical school at the time that I had been there. So by the time I'd got to third year, the medical school, I think, I think it was third year, the medical school was celebrating its 10 year birthday. So it was very fresh at the time. And I think by the time I graduated or maybe I was an F1 or F2 
year was the first year that there was a consultant that had come out of Brighton Sussex Medical School. So it was a very new, fresh medical school, um, quite small teaching groups. Um, they were very good at sort of listening to the students so that we could aid the course essentially in terms of what worked, what didn't work and, and how things could be improved and how things could be changed. So I felt really supported at medical school actually. I know not everyone has that sort of experience, but um, I think it was done in the best way that it could be done. Obviously it's not a perfect experience. I'm not saying that I never had any sort of difficulties or or bad times there, um, but for the most part, it was it was good, yeah. And and in terms of being being involved in societies or clubs, what what sort of places did you uh, get stuck into? So for me, I remember being involved with like the raising and give it, giving charity. So we had like these rag nights. Um, so getting involved with like charities and things like that. Um, in our university, we had like a drama sort of thing called the Medic Review, where they put on like a production every year. So um, having some involvement with that kind of stuff. To be honest, I was never really big on taking part in all of the other different societies. Um, not for any particular reason, but I guess now on reflection, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps that some of the social sort of gatherings were a bit too much for me. And I'm like, as I said at the start of this conversation, I am a bit more of an introvert. So I really do like being a bit more of a homebody and taking time for myself. So although uni is a very social place and there's so many different social activities, I think a lot of it was about balance for me and just knowing where to draw the line between, you know, getting involved, meeting people, but you know, not not having a breakdown because I've not had enough time to myself really. And sort of studying medicine at the time, did you have an inclination about, you know, what you're gonna do after graduating, some which specialty and so on? Yeah, zero, absolutely zero. So I had no idea where I wanted to go throughout medical school. Um, and I, I probably did that deliberately. Like I really tried to just keep an open mind, not put too much pressure on myself. I think from my, you know, um, experiences with the medical world, just from growing up and things like that, I think I just had something in me that knew that I wasn't going to be able to predict exactly what I'm going to like or enjoy until I'm actually in the job. Like the job itself has its own responsibilities and, and drawbacks and, and benefits and things like that, that I wasn't really going to be able to know fully until I'd experienced it. So I really didn't want to commit to anything or you know, sort of close my mind in on one sort of specialty and block out something else that actually could have been better for me. All I was aware of is that fundamentally the most important thing for me moving forward was going to be quality of life. So with everything that I was considering within my career, I always thought about, will this fit with the kind of quality of life that I want to have, um, you know, 10, 20 years down the line? What's going to give me that work-life balance? Um, so that's probably the only thing that I was aware of when I was at medical school, like with it, when I was sort of experiencing the different specialties. It's like, well, um, people would speak to consultants about like, you know, that was a really interesting case. And like, I really enjoyed this and whatever. And then if I had the chance to speak to a consultant, I'd be like, but, you know, how's your personal life? Like, do you get time to yourself? Like, um, have you got a family? Like, especially when I was meeting like female consultants, I always wanted to pick their brains just to try and figure out how they have managed the balance. Because that's a big thing that that worries me or concerns me moving forward it's going to be how to balance my career and personal life as a woman specifically and and, and were there any specialties which you thought that, that that managed to kind of find that balance there so 
I think GP was always one that people spoke about at that time, you know, a sort of nine to five job, uh, not too many weekends, um, no one calls, no one sociable hours. So that was always something that in my mind was a bit like a safety net, like something to fall back on. If nothing else fit, then you know that that is like a solid, um, reliable specialty choice that can give you some degree of work-life balance. Um, but I was also quite drawn to psychiatry at the time. Um, I was really lucky enough that when I did my psychiatry placement at university, I got placed in a forensic psychiatry unit. Um, and so there were days when I got to sort of go to one of the biggest prisons sort of in that area um, and go to like the, the ward side of it and actually see the patients that were in prison but had these psychiatric diagnoses um, and get a chance to speak with them and spend a few days with the police who were like doing all the sectioning and things like that. Um, one of the days I got to attend a court case with someone who um, had committed whatever crime and then ended up having a psychiatric assessment and so on and so forth. So it was just, it was, it was a whole new dimension of medicine being thrown into this sort of environment and seeing the legal system and like the prison system and things like that. Um, I mean, it was a bit scary at certain times because it is just so unfamiliar, those spaces that you go into, but it was like scary thrilling. Like I kind of love that adrenaline boost of when you're a little bit scared, you kind of don't feel right in this sort of place, but it sort of fuels you, you know? So I really was interested in psychiatry at that time, probably more so than other things. Yeah, yeah. And and then sort of finals came along and, you know. Finals came along and got by through the skin of my teeth. I was always very bad when it came to studying. I'm a last minute person, a procrastinator, of course. Um, yeah, it was, it was tough. I remember they were really, really hard years. And I think at that time, all you want to do, well, all I wanted to do was just get through. Like I just wanted to get through medical school. To me, it seemed like the hardest thing ever at the time yeah. um, and I wasn't sure at certain times that I would make it but just you know persevered and somehow managed to <laughs> graduate um yeah no obviously graduated fine but yeah 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 I mean it was it's was probably the most toughest time in my life uh, going through finals um and it's always at the back of your mind for the whole sort of medical school I mean for, for me it was anyway you know always yeah. thinking about finals from from day one yeah, exactly. Like when, because our exams, especially at the start, they were like modular. So we would do like a body system at a time. And I remember even at that time, I was like, but how are we supposed to know all the body systems by the end? Like, is that really all going to be in one big exam? Like, how can someone know everything about everything? It was very, very daunting. Um, but, you know, they they gear you up to it and it's it's given in sort of manageable chunks and you sort of just end up collating all of that information and you surprise yourself I guess at the end of it by how much you know and you've picked up on yeah it, it just accumulates in your body somehow yeah. you know um I thought it accumulates. Like yeah. yeah yeah I mean I thought it was all to do with the brain but it's not it's sort of everywhere it goes sort of, yeah for sure you know all those ward rounds and all those um uh, you know incidents where you're sort of put down quite quite visibly uh, amongst your colleagues for sure you know, <laughs> you know all sort of goes inside and and uh works its magic um I don't know how it works but it, 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 you just get through it and I think you know as long as you're kind of with with the rest of your colleagues mm. doing similar things you see you're okay that's true you are all in the same boat and that that is something to be said like no matter how you're feeling there are going to be people who are you know 
within a very close vicinity to you that are going through something similar that that can relate to you and that you can relate to them so that was obviously helpful being around and, all the people that are doing the same thing and worrying about the same thing as you and and was there any sort of support uh, services or support structures for for students who were struggling at the time there was actually we had a really really good sort of support system there um I can't remember exactly what they called themselves at the time, but they were like support workers and they dealt with, you know, the mental health and sort of emotional well-being and the personal life side of things. And there was actually always someone to speak to. And even certain things that I went through during that time in medical school, I always felt very supported, actually. And it was always um, a case of, well, what can we do to make things easier for you? Um, do you need a bit of time out? Do you just need a bit of an extension to a deadline? Do you need to just speak to someone else? Or there was always lots of options. Um, Obviously, I can't speak for other people and what sort of experiences they've had, because I'm sure it probably wasn't all positive for everyone. But for me personally, I actually did have a very good experience when it came to seeking support. Um, and it really highlighted to me that, you know, if you ask for support, then you will get it. You've just got to have that strength to recognise when you need some additional support, when you're not able to provide enough of that for yourself and you've got to sort of look externally there's no shame in asking for support when you need it uh, uh, and then um you graduated and you thought that's it i've got there you know i was like i made times. it i don't care about anything else anymore like <laughs> i will stay as an f1 for the rest of my life because it does not matter like i've got my title i've got my little degree under my belt like i'm set um and I think and then it, reality I just, and then reality sits in and then reality slips in and you start your first day of F1 and everyone's already like, OK, so what specialty are you doing and what are you what are your plans and um, and what exams are you going to take this year? And have you enrolled in this course? And I'm like, whoa, like, do we not just get a minute? Like, can we not just be for like a little while before we think about progression and the next step again like it's very very fast paced actually and I've I found it to be a lot of pressure to be honest um too much pressure in all honesty so so what what happened did you just sort of carry on and hope I for the best sort of shut it out. I think I really did try and shut it out as much as I could um again I wasn't really ready to make a decision about what specialty I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know what path I wanted to go down. So I wasn't ready to start committing to anything at that point. What I wanted to do was just really be present in the moment um, and just go through the day-to-day -day life of starting off as a junior doctor and learning and making mistakes and getting things wrong and really utilizing the fact that everyone knows you are the most junior person in the hospital right now. So, you know, just kind of relish in it. Like, make the mistakes not obviously life-threatening mistakes but when you're asked a question and you don't know it or anything like that like this is the time to make mistakes um and as I'd already learned in my life that when you make mistakes or when you fail things it's just an opportunity to learn so really trying to make the most of that while I was in the position to do that um so I just spent my foundation years just kind of coasting through my rotations basically trying to get as in, as involved as I could within my rotations without letting sort of external pressures um, impede on that um, and I had quite a good mixture of rotations in foundation so I did like general medicine um, stroke um, trauma and orthopedic surgery uh, psychiatry and then emergency medicine 
Um, so I ended up only doing five rotations because, you know, the big C hit and we didn't end up rotating. So um, I did eight months of A&E throughout the pandemic um, and lost my last rotation. Um, but I think that was quite a mixed bag of specialties to sort of get exposure to. Um, and in all honesty, I actually enjoyed all of them. <laughs> like, uh, I'm quite an open-minded person in general. Like, you know, I'll go with the flow. Um, I'm open to people showing me new things or introducing me to new things. And that's sort of the attitude that I had when I went into these specialties. Like, oh, let's see what it's about. Like, what do they do day to day? And that's a bit interesting. Well, oh, I never knew that was a part of it. So it's just sort of having that open, you know, keen, interested mentality and attitude. I think that's how I sort of got through foundation years. So um, not being non-committal, is that is that because you you think that was the best kind of survival way of doing things? That's an interesting way of putting it, non-committal. My, the way that I've always phrased it in my life is just that I'm very much not an impulsive person. So with any part of my life, like I overthink everything. Um, I hate making decisions unless I feel that I've thought about it enough and that I've weighed up all my options and... I guess there's a worry of making the wrong decision. So, you know, from things as trivial as like going shopping and buying a new, buying a new top or buying a new jacket, like it will literally take me probably a good two weeks of looking at the item online, um, assessing it, you know, looking at it from different angles, then going into the shop, maybe trying it. I'll take a picture, I'll come home, I'll look at the picture again. I'll match it up with the picture online and then maybe eventually like six weeks later I'll make the decision to buy the item and at that point I'm praying and hoping to God that it's still being sold because I've been thinking about it for so long so non-committal is probably a common theme in my life just from the sense that I just want to be sure like I want to be sure of what I'm getting myself into um so I think getting gathering as much information about something before you make a decision is it's always worked for me. That's always been the way that I prefer to do things. So that's kind of what, how I started my career in medicine, which was just sort of fact finding and gathering information and speaking to as many people as I want, as I needed to, in order to then formulate my own opinion as to where I wanted to be moving forwards. And and, and what, what was it like um, being a junior doctor in the COVID times? What was that like? It was a very, very weird experience. It was weird it's an interesting choice of word in itself um it was a mixed bag okay like it was there was in some ways like a unity and like a camaraderie sort of element of it because you know we've all been thrown into the deep end all of us are such juniors there are senior doctors and consultants that have never had to work through a pandemic or anything of the sort and here we are two years into our careers just being expected to manage something so global um but you know we were all in it together so you know we all know what we're going through and things like that from that respect it was great you had support from you know your immediate peers who were in the same boat as you were um but then obviously there were so many challenges in terms of just the hysteria of it all and the uncertainty of what was going on and the conflicting information that we were being fed from the government, the World Health Organization, the, the newspaper outlets and and things like that. Like it was a lot, it was a, a, a lot to sort of carry and to hold. And I think although the work environment started with that sort of camaraderie kind of thing, there were elements of it that probably became a bit toxic, I would say. And I mean, it's not the fault of the of the of the healthcare staff and whatever, but it's just everyone's really stressed, you know what I mean? So you put 
a load of stressed people in one room with each other it's not going to be a hunky-dory like environment like you can feel it you can feel everyone being worried about their family members and the fact that they're working in these high-risk areas and going back to their families and um child care and things like that like you, you can just feel it and so it becomes a really heavy environment I think to be in um even though the clinical aspect of work, actually, I was working in A&E for about eight months, but they sent out instructions to tell people not to come to the hospital unless they had, you know, life-threatening COVID symptoms. So actually the work really slowed down substantially for the A&E staff because um, all of the other people that usually come in with all their different types of ailments just weren't showing up. Um, so from that perspective, the workload became lighter, but then there's the added stress and concern of like, well, what's happened to those people that usually present with heart attacks and strokes and these like really severe infections like they they can't just not be having them um but actually we're just not seeing these patients and when will we see them and when will we feel the aftermath of this sort of period of time while we've asked all these potentially really sick and unwell people to stay home um so it was very multifactorial you know what i mean there's constant it was just so uncertain and trying to figure it out and um stay afloat essentially it was really really challenging and doing that for eight months in in an environment like a and e it was a lot for sure yeah yeah and and i mean i'm sure your um resilience capabilities went up sky high during that period yeah time. well yeah whether i liked it or not like you just <laughs> have to i think that's a lot of it within medicine like you either sink or you float so yeah. you've just got to kind of make that decision at that time and i think i was probably reaching breaking point to be honest like a or as we always say in, in the medical world, burnout. Um, that's definitely the point that I got to at the end of that sort of eight month stint. Um, and so by that point, sort of within my career, like I still hadn't made any decisions in terms of specialty or whatever. So I wasn't about to embark on any specialty training. I had decided probably from like the beginning of an F2, of my F2 year, that I was probably going to take a year out from training um just have a bit of freedom and flexibility um to you you know do the things that I enjoy doing be it traveling seeing friends but then also taking time to really uh, get some sort of CV together and really consider what my next steps were going to be career-wise I just wanted a bit of uh freedom to do that you know so 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 you had a, you had a bit of space after the sort of eight months of um COVID pre yeah pressure cooking environment um, exactly and I actually then took about I took about three months off to be honest like I, I didn't go back into locum work for a good three months and I just spent time at home with my family um, which in itself was um, you know a unique experience because all of us were at home pretty much um, and having to sort of deal with the same thing and no one was really was really able to go out and do very much so it was actually a, a very wholesome sort of time spending that time with my family getting that support quality time honestly just sleeping sleeping a lot like I felt like I had two years of sleep to catch up on um so just resting focusing on my own mental health on my physical health just trying to re-energize basically um and I would always recommend that you know, when you feel like you're at that sort of point. Luckily, I was in a position that I could do it. You know, it's very rare that you are afforded the opportunity of taking three months off when you're in medicine. Um, but I saw the opportunity and I grabbed it by the horns. So it was it was definitely needed. And then it was very useful at the end of it. And, uh, and I'm sure during that period of time, you know, you're reflecting a lot about what's coming next and 
Yeah, for sure. So then that all the the specialty training has always been like a common theme throughout everything. So I think when I was doing the A&E for about eight months, that's when I really started to gravitate more to ophthalmology. So we would get like, you know, the the eye complaints that come in and it was a whole totally different world, you know, when people have an eye problem. First, you've got to run around the department and even try and like locate the equipment that you need to examine a patient because they're just not it's just not the main thing that we do there. You know what I mean? Like you see your chest pains and your headaches and your abdominal pains. And then someone comes in with something wrong with their eye and everyone kind of low key panics because they're like, God, this is not our area. Um, but I just found myself being, you know, drawn to it. Like I really enjoyed the intricacy of it. Um, I enjoyed um, sort of the neurology aspects that's tied in with ophthalmology. And then that's when I started to think more about ophthalmology as a potential career, looking into the lifestyle of it, knowing even when you're an A&E and you want to call an ophthalmologist and you want to speak to the ophthalmologist on call, you kind of gauge what the on-call sort of way of life is for an ophthalmologist. And I'm thinking, God, that's quite, it's quite an all right job that it's a bit cushy. Like I could get down with that. Um, and here's me thinking about quality of life being the most important thing. Um, so that's probably like towards the last two, three months of my A&E placement is when I really started to, you know, consider ophthalmology as a potential route. And then and then he did some work in ophthalmology after that or? Yeah. So then that was when I had I then had my sort of few months off from from work, um, regrouped, got myself back together. And then I thought, you know what, this is what I'm going to try and do now. Like I've got the time for it. Um, I'm not really tied down to anything like work wise. So I'm going to use my free time to just put myself out there and get a bit more exposure within ophthalmology. I'd never worked a day in ophthalmology. I've never had any real clinical exposure to it. I think most medical schools um, are probably the same in that the maximum teaching you get is about a week when it comes to ophthalmology at university. So a week out of five years is really minimal. So um, I knew that I had to learn more about it. And so that's when I started with my emails. So I was just drafting out emails, sending them to just random consultants, like, you know, in and around Manchester, which is where I was at the time hoping to get something back and then just sort of like branching out further and further and further. Essentially what I started to do was just hound a bunch of ophthalmologists with the hope that someone would agree to kind of let me in and get a bit of an insight into the, into the career and all of that sort of stuff. So I'd say, you know, if I was, if I was sending about, if I was sending out about 20 emails, maybe five of them would respond out of the five two of them would have something of an opportunity and you know out of those two only one of them would manifest at the end so it really sort of narrowed everything down but I had the time to do that most importantly so um when you're not really worried about your own calls and this that and the other I felt like I had the energy to do that so that's sort of where I went with it managed to get like a two-week taster um period within ophthalmology um managed to get myself into one of the eye centers in Birmingham to actually have a go at like the eye simulator sort of stuff um did some courses really just tried to make the most out of that time to be honest um to gain more insight into the the specialty and and what I needed to do to be able to get into specialty training for it and and did you get a sort of um a fellow job or, or a clinical attachment job afterwards or so no actually so I tried to get into some sort of clinical job within ophthalmology but it's really hard to do so because most of like the locum positions and things like that they're wanting more senior people people that have actually got experience to be you know running clinics and seeing their own patients and things like that and I had zero experience 
So what I then started to do was when I got back into work again, I was doing just general medical locum jobs um, because that's what I'd had the most experience in. That was what was going to be the least stressful for me in terms of learning something new and doing something new. Um, but I was just, again, quite strategic with the medical jobs that I was looking for. So like what I told you before about if I can't get in through the front door, I'm getting in through the back. So like if you're not going to offer me any sort of job in ophthalmology, I'm going to get a different job in a hospital with an ophthalmology department. And then I'm just going to wander over to your department and hound you in person because it's a bit harder for you to say no to me when I'm stood right in front of you. So I was then doing medical locum jobs selectively in hospitals that I knew had ophthalmology departments. And literally in my lunch break, or if I had any time spare, I would just go and find some ophthalmology people um, and kind of sell myself to them and, and just ask for any opportunities and and wait and hear for the outcome, which was sometimes a no, sometimes a yeah. Um, but I think this is why, you know, having had failures and things like that a bit earlier in my career when I was a bit younger, you get used to this. Um, you know, if someone says no to you, it's not the end of the world. You just move on, try again, do something different. So... That's where all that sort of failure and, and, and not getting in the first time really aided with this path of ophthalmology because it did end up taking me a good two, three years to get to the point that I'm at now. So And 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 who gave you, you know, your first break in ophthalmology? Who gave me my first break? So I think the person that gave me my first break was the guy that allowed me to go and do a taste a week with him, wow. which actually was all the way up in Scotland. Um, so I went all the way to Air in Scotland and spent two weeks with uh, a vitreoretinal surgeon there who really, you know, invited me in, got me introduced to all the department. I was speaking to like the juniors, the seniors. I was shadowing in surgery and in clinics and um, got me involved with like writing a, a case report and things like that. Like was just very open to giving me opportunities and saw that I really was fascinated by it and keen to learn more so that I think was what got the ball rolling um, and then I've met quite a few actually really lovely ophthalmologists um, another guy who gave me the opportunity to do an audit and some teaching in one of the more local hospitals here um, perhaps he was because he was a bit of a younger consultant and quite you know fresh from this whole process himself I guess he probably related to how challenging it is and how um, you know, hard it is to get into this specialty and get that sort of experience to build up your portfolio. So he was very accommodating, extremely supportive. Um, and it's these sorts of people that, you know, I'll always be indebted to in certain ways because I had no no exposure, no experience whatsoever prior to them. And they they really helped to facilitate, you know, this path for me. So yeah, really grateful. And and um uh you know, congratulations for recently getting into the uh, specialty training thank you very much um did you get sort of deja vu feelings of of you know back in the day when you were trying to get into medical school yeah absolutely so actually we are 10 years 10 years ago I got into medical school 10 years later um I was offered uh, a specialty training post within ophthalmology so it seems quite like a, a good sort of marking point you know um looking back and seeing how much has been achieved in the last 10 years uh but yeah it was it was quite literally a dream come true so it's it was really I don't think I've ever worked as hard for anything in my life as what I have in order for this stage so for like the ST application process it was a lot of work it was a lot of sacrifice it was a lot of hours of you know not seeing friends and families whilst you're 
doing exams and, and, and preparing for interviews and things like that. It was a huge commitment um, with a lot of sacrifice. So to finally, you know, reap the rewards at the end of it, uh, it's just a surreal feeling. It's really surreal. It, I keep kind of pinching myself. It sounds cliche, but when you're, when you're working for something and it seems quite unattainable, but you're still working towards it, and then suddenly it just comes, it takes a bit of time to, you know, get your head around it and actually appreciate what, what you've done and what you've achieved. And in terms of the actual process of getting into the ST uh, training, is, is there anything, you know, is there any changes you'd like to see to make the process, you know, a bit more um, humane maybe? I mean, there's probably a lot of processes. I mean, there's, there's certain parts of it that I think work really well. So at the moment, the, the process for specialty uh, applications is kind of divided into three aspects. So you've got your sort of clinical side, um, your academic side, and then your communication side. So the clinical side of things is that you do this MSRA exam, which is the same exam that GP applicants do, certain surgical trainees do, psychology, radiology. We all do this sort of general GP exam. So that's sort of the clinical side of things. Um, then you've got your academic side, which is your portfolio, and that's literally all the papers, posters, awards, things like that, that you've achieved academically. Um, and then the last stage is the interview stage, which is heavily based on communication skills. So I think actually it's good that they assess us on all three of those different components, but within each component itself, there are problems. So the GP exam, for example, uh, it's renowned for having the situational judgment test portion of it which is something that I think every doctor in the world will tell you is a hit and miss sort of thing. Like you're trying to gauge how an examiner or someone else that set this question wants you to deal with a scenario based on your own sort of like morality and upbringing and culture and things like that. And you're then graded as to how well you deal with situations and how well your judgment is. And it's just, it's a bit too subjective, you know what I mean? In order for it to then have so much weighting move, moving forward for your application. So things like that, you know, made it definitely more challenging, even aspects of the portfolio. So the academic side of things, the, the things that you are able to score points on include things like having a PhD or writing a book and, um, having another degree and something else. And it's like, well, how many people actually have all this stuff? You know, like theoretically, you're meant to be applying for specialty training. What after your, after F2, after second year of foundation training and how have people amassed this much in that time? So it seems really unrealistic, but you know, the reality is they're not expecting you to get all of those points, but I guess it's just, um, you know, allowing for all the people that are coming in at very different levels, um, you know, that might not be junior doctors, they might have been in other specialties and so on and so forth. Um, but they're the things that were really daunting when I was applying. Because I looked at that list of things for the portfolio and I was like, well, I don't have any of those things. Like, how on earth am I supposed to do this? Um, but you just end up breaking down the sections and working through them and trying to scrape together points from here, there and everywhere. And you know, everything counts and, and you might as well just shove it all in and hope that that some of them hit, to be honest. Um, but yeah, so I think that those certain things could maybe be looked into a little bit more to make them a bit more accessible. But then part of me thinks they don't want it to be accessible. That's why they are making it so hard. You know, they're trying to filter out as many people as possible. So I can't see it getting any easier, to be honest. If anything, it's going to get more challenging. Um, but I'm glad that I won't have to deal with that now.
and and sooner you know going forward you know you're about to start the specialty training what what's what's going through your mind what's um what are you thinking about honestly like I remember because it was a similar feeling to when I was in medical school and I thought you know what Hannah as soon as you get that title as soon as you graduate medicine life is just going to be fine like you're not going to have to worry about anything because you know in your deepest darkest fears on your on your worst days possible you'll tell yourself that you're a doctor you made it and life is going to be okay so I remember running up to this ophthalmology process I was like the day that you make it Hannah you know what life is just going to be all okay because no matter what you're going to be an ice surgeon one day and that it will just make everything else so much better and this huge weight will be lifted um and in certain ways it did happen like a huge weight obviously has been lifted and I feel wonderful about it and I'm so excited um and I've ended up thankfully securing uh, like my first sort of choice deanery um I'm staying very local in the northwest and that's all that's all great um but then now it's just this whole other world of okay well what is the next seven years of training going to look like and now I need to start gearing up and preparing for the next big hurdle, which is getting a consultant job at the end of it. So I'm already getting, you know, like my supervisors and seniors at this point being like, you need to start getting your your, your publications and your papers and your research and you need to do your audits and at least two a year and this time. And then I'm like, whoa, like this is just blowing my mind. Like I really thought that the hardest bit had been done, like because it seemed like it was the hardest point, you know, getting in. But actually, once you're in, there's just a whole it's just a whole other world, you know, and that's the thing with being a doctor that the the hurdles never end. Um, the stress never ends, that there's always something more that that, that you're going to be working towards and doing. So in certain ways, you've just got to roll with the punches. So now I'm trying to not overthink the next seven years, because quite frankly, it seems daunting, like I'm at an age in my life where perhaps over the next five, 10, 15 years, I will be thinking about starting a family um, and trying to balance family life with my career, which I obviously care a lot about and wanna pursue and how that will look like and how many years will it actually take me to specialize and become a consultant? Am I gonna have to go part-time within that? Um, do I even have the time, energy and headspace to be thinking about the certain subspecialties that interest me at this moment in time? Or are they too hard to attain and get to? And should I kind of lower my expectations? Um, it's just all of those thoughts, really, um, you know, that, that, are, that are plaguing my mind at this moment in time. But I'm trying to shut them, shut them out so that I can just at least deal with what's in front of me right now. I'll cross those bridges when I get to them. But that's the nature of being an overthinker, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure. I think, um, you know, there's so many different ways um, and branches that life can can throw at you. And um, the good news is there's there's so many people out there who've, who've thought of these things and have actually um, done the reality work of things. And they're more than happy to share their experiences. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I've learned as well. Like if you don't ask, you don't get. So that applies to everything, whether it comes to advice or opportunities or anything like that. Like I've definitely learned to just pluck up the courage, ask what I need to ask. Just yeah. again, it's fact finding, you know, I just need to gather as much information as I can in order to make the decisions that I need to make in my own life, to be honest. Everything's about the choices that you have, you know, um, that sort of governs what kind of lifestyle you have and any changes that you want to make. Like change doesn't come um by chance or overnight it's like an accumulation of the daily choices that you make um in, in certain scenarios and based off the outcome that you're trying to achieve so just take each day as it comes face the daily choices that I have and before you know it I'm sure the seven years is going to fly by 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be another sort of decade ahead of you where it's going to be another major milestone at the end of it. So I, you know, I hope be so. Interesting. I really yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I'm from the other side of things. I'm, I'm, I'm very impulsive. I, I tend to make the decision first and then reap the consequences afterwards <laughs> you know I'm sort just of... hearing you say that makes my belly do a backflip because I can't imagine living my life in that way it's so it's just too stressful it really is yeah no I mean that's me definitely it's like yeah make the decision and then and then uh reap the uh the problems or the rewards and, um... and how have you found that that has been in your life like do you then have to deal with a lot of fallout or are you just like yep. a professional now at dealing with the fallout because you expect it and anticipate it with these impulsive decisions how is it conducive <laughs> to a, a well I'm still alive I'm still alive which is a good thing yeah. and um you know I haven't done anything too drastic so um but so yeah what was that it's working out okay that different strokes yeah. for different folks. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Otherwise, otherwise I just die in my overthinking. I just yeah. you know, you know, the moment I overthink, um, I just slow down and come to a stop. Yeah, for sure. It can be a it can be a slippery slope sometimes. You've yeah. got to find the sweet spot. Yeah, I mean the sweet spot for me is to make the decision and then see what happens. That's my uh um, well opposite. as you say if it's not broke don't fix it if it works for you keep going yeah. yeah I think so um it's been absolutely great listening to you and and um well done for being you know uh, persistent which is what Iraqis are like you know where we're, we're you know you can't keep us down and we just keep going I guess absolutely we'll always rise back up in, in every way shape or form so it's ingrained in us it's in the blood essentially <laughs> Um, but thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today and obviously listening to your podcast as well. Some great episodes on there. So I'm happy to be one of the many. That, that Good for you. Been. Good for you. Um, I'd like to end on this, you know, um, what would be your um, three top advice to Hannah, who's just, you know, didn't manage to get into medical school on her first attempt and uh, first experience of failure. Um, what would you advise her having experienced over the last 10 years, what you've experienced so far? I think the first one would be trust the process, um, which is kind of like roll with the punches. You know, everything happens for a reason. You don't always know what the reason is. You can't always find what the reason is, but it's happened. So just deal with the matter at hand. Um, the second one would be failure it really does make you stronger not immediately don't expect it to happen immediately it's a it's a it's a process that takes time um but also not looking at it as failure it's an opportunity to learn when you don't get the thing that you want it's an opportunity to learn and it's an opportunity to grow so just utilize that opportunity um and the third thing is that you're right work-life balance is the most important thing to live your life hannah don't sweat the small stuff and make sure you're enjoying it Awesome. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's been great. Thank you so much, Haida.